So can you open up with me to Titus chapter 2? I'm, I'm glad to see all the guys came back. Last week we, we addressed men, old men and young men from the book of Titus. Now what we were, we've been reminding ourselves is that Titus is such a, a practical book. And it's so practical because it's so theological. If you have in your mind sort of a, a differentiation or a, an incongruency between theology and practice or how to do life, how to apply it, then you have an unbiblical worldly view of theology. Uh, uh, it's, it's, there's just so many churches. You might go in and sit down this very time on a Sunday morning and, and you will hear, do, do, obey. Here's how to apply. Here's how to apply. Here's what to go and live like. And, and, and the screaming of that without the, the basis of theological doctrinal teaching from the Word of God is kind of like being provided with a Navman. I remember when Navmans first came out and it was all the rage to have one of those, those huge LCD screen things that would plug onto your windscreen. You can hardly see past them. And my family went to America and we, we rented one of these and it came with John Cleese's voice on it, which if you don't know him, you're probably more holy than me, number one, uh, but he's a, a, a European, uh, English comedian. Anyway, and <clears throat> if you did a U-turn, part of this little setting is that, if not did a U-turn, if you made a wrong turn, the volume would turn up and John Cleese would start yelling in this stressed out English voice, which I'm sure would have caused some accidents, but it was funny. And, and there's a lot of churches. You can go in and sit down and, and the sermon telling you what to do, where to go, how to behave, what to apply without theological teaching is just like a navman given to you that every time you disobey, fail, don't know what to do, you, you're yelled out louder, but here's the twist. You're sitting in a car without fuel. So you know what to do. You know how you should be doing it. You know exactly what the law requires, but you're just not given the power to do it. And in the mind of Paul, and therefore in the letter of Titus, he knows that teaching, doctrinal, what we, what we see here is called sound doctrine, that's healthy teaching, is what empowers holy living. Good works is the other phrase used frequently throughout Titus. So you'll, you'll notice just how practical it becomes, and yet it doesn't disconnect itself from theology. We saw last week the call for young men and old men because of the biblical view of manhood that is given to mankind, especially for men, there is a, a, a great lot of responsibility that they have. And so we saw that in their leadership and in their self-control and all of these things. But this week, we turn to womanhood. Now, I just want to say that if you say you love something, but that thing that you love, you have entirely redefined, you actually don't love that thing. Let me give you an example. Uh, I was once talking with a friend from work, and she sort of she said this. Now I'm going to sort of caricature the conversation to make it a little bit more obvious. She she said she loves being a mum, she loves children, and the thing about her kids that she loves is their their cute yaps, how how they eat, their cute little barks in the afternoon, their their wonderful little cute wagging tail, their fluffy ears, and how cute they are. <clears throat> And I respectfully informed her that that's not a kid, that's a puppy. But here she is saying, I love my kids, they're my children, I'm a mummy, that's, that's, I love being a mum and I love children. So, okay, do you, the other thing you love about, do you love the kids that look like humans, that uh, start out as babies, have two legs, two arms? And she, no, no, the reason I have dogs is because I hate the idea of mothering and human children. Now, now she had redefined, so, so uh, 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 exemplary is that of mo much of our culture, but, but now she's telling me, she knows it's a bad thing to say, I hate kids, right? No one's wearing that shirt, well, they do, but, but no, no one's proudly wearing that shirt thinking, I'm a, I'm a good person for this, uh, I hate parenting, I would hate to be a mum, but, but she said, I love mums, I love being a mum, I love kids, but my kids are dogs, I despise human kids in that relationship. Now, now, the reality there is, I don't care how much you say it, you hate children. I don't care how much you redefine or you call this parenting, you hate how God defines parenting. That's pretty simple. So I don't care that you say you love it, you've redefined it, therefore you hate it. Now, what's happened today in our age is, is along that same vein and theme, is that our world has tried to tell us that they love women, they champion women's rights, they want to protect and exalt women, 
and femininity, but the way they define women and femininity is precisely opposite to what God says. Therefore, what they're exalting and promoting and trying to lift up is not womanhood and is not femininity. And when you describe it in a godly biblical way that is in line with our design by nature, they despise that. They hate that. So I don't care that you call it feminism. It's hatred of women if what you hate about womanhood is God's definition of it. It's quite tricky to go ahead and call it feminism, but it's not truly that. It's just about as tricky as as Hitler calling his party the, the Judaism National Party. I don't care what you call it. What you hate is actually shown by actions and fruit. I'll get emails about that one. Don't worry. <clears throat> so what we have is, is in, in the Bible a glorious call and meaning for women. Our world does hate women, but here's the proof of our culture's hatred of true womanhood. They've destroyed the woman's glorious calling from God. And, I, and I'm going to read Titus 2 in a moment, and, and we're going to just read that and, and hear the shifting in the seats of how, how cringeworthy apparently God's, God's word is. Here's the ultimate insult that I just want to apologize for, is, is the great insult to every one of the women among us and listening from home. The great insult is that a man can be whatever you are, a woman, if he just so feels like it when he wakes up in the morning. That apparently womanhood is nothing more than a self-identity. I can choose to be it or not. That, if it is so easily interchangeable, destroys the value, the true glorious uniqueness of what being a woman is. I read just this week of some dad named Roy who's pregnant. Little, little cheat notes here. He's a woman who had some surgeries and hormonal injections, still has a uterus. He's a woman with a lot of mental problems and needs support and help and prayer, but he's being championed by the mail, the, the, the news report that I read, for being one of Australia's first dads to give birth. Now, if I'm a woman, and I'm not, if I was, or as a lover of biblical womanhood, that insults me. That makes me angry. A woman is so much more, right? You can't just, just throw it away, interchange it just so easily, right? And even just a few years ago, we saw a man surgeried to look like a woman win Woman of the Year. That, take that personally. They look at you. They look at God's design. They say it's so, so empty, it can become literally anything. Well, but I want you to start out today, and look, we're going to get to Titus 2. I just want to prep some work here. We're going to look at God's the, uh, a few points on God, how God sees woman, how God sees women, and how God sees womanhood. Number one, God created women, every woman, imago dei, that is, in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 tells us, so God created man, that is mankind, in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The woman is equal with the man in the image of God and uniquely is able to show God's image in ways that men just can't. There is beauty, there is honor, there is value, there is sanctity in being a woman because you are made in the image of God. Secondly, God protects the interchangeability of those two roles, of those two titles. God foreseeing the sin that we would engage in, he, he tied together biology and gender identity, right? We, are, we should not believe the world that tells us today that the, the, the DNA in your cells, the, the, the anatomy you were born with does not determine your gender identity. Are you a male or female or any other one of those mixtures they come up with? It's up to you. No, God has so honored being a woman by making a black and white, uninterchangeable reality, a, a fence that guards anybody from trying to run up and jump over that fence and call themselves a woman, that, that fence is biology. If you're not born as a woman in a woman's body, you're not ever able to be a, a woman. And if you, are, if you are 
born as a woman, the calling on God for you is to be in your gender identity, in your sexuality, is a heterosexual woman. That's God's glorious protection around that, is biology. So God wants you to be a woman if you're born as a woman, in a woman's body. Spirit, body, intertwined, there is no confusion on God's part there. Secondly, uh, thirdly, sorry, God calls women to be wives and mothers. Glorious, as we read the Bible, is this theme. Those who will carry for nine months, give birth to, and raise children into their adult years. That is the glorious calling on women as a uh, generality. They, in fact, even by God's perfect creation wisdom, they designed in biology and with their, in their hormones, your capacity for emotions and empathy, your protection instincts, your, your, you literally have softer skin and fairer muscles, your unique organs and body parts, they are all designed, as only God could, for the nourishing of human life. That's, that's you. That's a glorious design of God, and we thank him for that. That is an amazing thing. Fourthly, now, hear me out on this one. He gives women, because he honors and loves women, he gave women men. You think that's part of the curse. I'm telling you, that's supposed to be a good thing. To train them, oh, sorry, he gives women for leadership, for protection and provision. Now, you might hear that and say, that's called patriarchy. You can hear from me a loud amen. Patriarchy means male leadership. That's biblical. That's real biblical. Welcome to biblical patriarchy, but, but in a godly, Christ-like capacity. Now, where the fall came in, so many of these things, as we'll read in Genesis 3, even giving birth, comes tainted and is mixed with sin, and yet here we have, we're remembering God's good and godly design. So he gave them men for their help, provision, leadership, and protection. Next, I want to point you to this, that God, infinite, eternal Yahweh, came to earth and entrusted his life to a woman. Not a seasoned, done this a few times before, mother a first-time mother in her late teens. So great is God's calling on women. So God is, great is God's promise for women and his, his knowledge of their capacity that he entrusts his divine son, Jesus Christ, from womb till adult years in the loving, nourishing care of Mary of Galilee. That is significant. God entered in. He knows what it is like to be mothered. He, he, that was not below him. That was glorious. Uh, also, God redeems women in Christ. This is the gospel for women, that you are your sins, uh, including your hurtful pictures or harmful ideas and practices about what it is to be a woman. All of that is redeemed in Christ, sins forgiven, and you are brought into a right standing before God. You you are saved from the world. You are saved from your sins. And you are saved from the grasp of the evil one who since the garden has been seeking to destroy women. We also see that God, because he loves women, he redeems men to be better for women. So that husbands and sons and men and leaders they are given the Holy Spirit, which brings their lusts into order, their rages into control, and a community of the church to keep one another in balance. That's, the, that's what God does over the men for the sake of the flourishing of the women and children. And lastly, God, in his grace, in his, because he so has given such a glorious calling to women, he has made women's work to count for eternity. Every single child reared and raised is an immortal soul. Every work that they do in obedience or following your example, mothers, is rippling into eternity. That is your crown to wear. That is the gift of God. That is such a significant work to be on mission in the raising of children. Every unseen act of mothering is seen by God and promised a reward by God. 
Where we see we see in Psalm that the in the Psalms that uh, the the picture is that that children, many children, are like arrows in the quiver of an archer. When, when an arrow is taken back and flung forwards and hit, it hits bullseye, who gets praised for that? The arrow or the one releasing it on its aim? It's, it's the one shooting it. It's, it's the mother. It's the, the parenting roles that send those children off to achieve great things. It's, the glory comes back to you. And let's look also at verse 6 in, in Titus, and then we'll go back and read the prior verses. Verse 6 says, <clears throat> oh, sorry, sorry, the end of verse 5 says, that all of the calling that God is going to retrain these women of Crete to do is, end of verse 5, so that the word of God may not be reviled. As we talk about biblical womanhood and the glorious calling of women, don't see that the men are here to glorify God, women barefoot, pregnant, go make sandwiches for them, stay out of it, your calling is less. No. The calling of eternal glory, of, like we said last week, adorning the gospel, which is this picture of, of a crown, the, the gold laying is adorning the prize jewel. So that the life of women and mothers also adorns the gospel of God so that others do not look at it and revile it, see it sitting in the mud and say, well, the gospel of Christ brings sad, unfulfilled, rebellious women. It's not good. Rather, they look at the life of women as they live the calling of God and say, that gospel is powerful, beautiful, and speaks to and calls people to live in light of a deeper, eternal calling that came since Genesis. So we're going to jump into Titus 2 now. And, and you might think, and you'd be right, that list of women, womanhood does sound a lot different to the list that you might make for men. That's true. But we believe, as with the Bible, that just because we're equal doesn't mean we have to do and be the same in everything. Right? No matter how, how much I wish, I never, as a man, get, sorry, get to have a baby. I'll say, I never get to give birth. I've all, it's a beautiful thing. I know you want to share it, but, uh, but I, I just am not allowed into that privilege. Uh, now, there is something glorious about it. There's a lot that's painful about it for the curse, but, but in that, I can't do the same thing as women can do. And so women cannot do all the same things men can do. It's by design. That's good. God has given different callings, though equal in Christ. Let's, let's look at a bit more of this. <clears throat> Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Paul says this to Titus. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers to much wine. They're to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. May God bless us as we dig into this. You, you know, it's, uh, it's, if you think, if you hear that and cringe, can you just imagine taking that and reading that at a women's study hall in a university? You might, you might read chapter, chapter 2 of Titus and talk about old men, and everybody say, yeah, yeah, that's true, that's relevant, that's good. Old men, be orderly. Young men, be self-controlled. Yeah, that's exactly right. Keep those young men in control might then read the part about old women to be uh, reverent and, and all of these. And people say, well, yeah, true. Okay, that's good. Uh, and then, and then it talks about old women training the younger women. And it's still at that point they might think, well, old ladies are irrelevant. They're not in our time. They're old-fashioned. But okay, women for women. That's all right. And then you read what the Bible then says about what the calling of women should be, what the older women are to train the young women to do. And at that point, out come the cries of, this is cultural, this is misogynistic, this is oppressive, this is bad. No, friends, we don't select scripture and preach the ones we like. We preach the Bible. We believe God when he speaks. We don't just believe in God. We believe God when he says that these are good things that adorn the gospel. Okay, so let, let's look at old, older women. I'm not going to say old women, but older women. I've... I've looked into the Greek. It's actually supposed to say formerly young women. That's, that's the much more uh, kind way to speak to women. That's a lie. But the formerly young women. Okay, so we're looking here at, while well, an old man was about above 60, uh, older women in this cultural day referred to any woman that was over and past her child-rearing years. 
So I'm able to have, have more children, yes, but also all her children are grown up and are now adults. It, to speaking of those women, Paul says, uh, be, uh, have reverent behavior. Now this, this word really means uh, act as one employed in holy service. It used to be used of, of different temple workers back in the Greek and Roman days. Uh, and so really what it's saying is tell the women, the older women, to act as those who are, in a Christian sense, priestesses. They're holy workers. The temptation you see might be that since my children are moved on, since I've done my duty and they're gone now, I can sit back and relax and I'm no longer in that holy calling of mothering and raising and training. And so Paul, he says, remind them, they're always on mission. They're still women. Therefore, they still have the great calling of raising up the next generation in Christ-likeness. So there needs to be this needs there needs to be holiness here, because as we're going to see in the next few verses, there is a mammoth task ahead for any woman. Though your children may have grown up and left in the church, there is a great and glorious responsibility on you. He then says here two negative things. He says yes, make sure they're reverent in behaviour, but make sure they are not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Often would be the case that as women sort of graduating from motherhood and now having the, the final decades of their life to themselves, especially in such an island of Crete, there is, there is idleness. They're no longer needing to chase around and raise the kids. Their time is their own. They're no longer needing to be awake and alert all hours of the night. Their kids are gone. And so what would happen is they would slip into idleness and where men in idleness might trend towards sins of sexuality and violence. So more frequently, the Bible speaks to the sins of women being those of the lips of, of, of uh, uh, overindulgence and of gossip and slander. And so he says here, make sure those old women, with all the time they have on their hands, don't let them gossip. Don't let them talk around and slander and accuse people. Also, don't let them numb themselves be- with wine. Uh, don't let them think that their job is done so they can sit back in laxity. Now, let's just speak to us today. Now, in, in the Christian circles, we're probably not, now it happens, uh, substance abuse, and, 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 but, but in a culture that's probably not Christian, that will be probably less. Nonetheless, the command comes. Older women, do not give yourself to substance abuse or misuse or self-medicating. It's dangerous, it is destructive, and as we'll see, it pulls you out of the ability to do the call of God on your life. But also, we might think of other ways that women of our generation uh, numb themselves and overindulge in things other than wine. Maybe it's spending two, three hours a day watching, keeping up with the Kardashians. Can I, can I submit to you that things of that nature would kill more brain cells than three bottles of wine a day? This kind of cultural numbing of ourselves may not be substance, but is still destructive. If you don't know what that show is, You have a special place in heaven. You are the pure among the elect. But other ways, women might engage in things that, in a Christian way, right? We're not going to go around and slander. That's a bad thing, right? Paul just said that. Very frequent was the the, the fast and loose, harsh tongue of the Christian woman. Maybe in the Christian church, we don't have so much of that, right? What we do is we just share prayer requests about this girl that I heard just the other day. I'm just, I'm just concerned about it. I just want to share with you all the secrets I know uh, that you might pray for it, right? Don't tell anyone, just like I didn't tell anyone. Maybe, maybe it comes in the form of gossiping by calling it uh, uh, concern, sharing these prayer requests. Uh, or there might be a, a complaining about husbands and all these downfalls and all these failures and all these sins because you just need a shoulder to cry on with friends. Now, there's, there's, there's part... In here, we're going to see where, where the women come around each other in order to help women love their husbands, right? If you need help loving your husband, well, he's probably not a perfect husband. Let's just say that. And, and so that's okay. But, but where there's complaining, derogatory speech, and tearing down, this is really what becomes a community of Satan. Do not think that slandering and accusing those you ought to respect is anything other than satanic. This word is the word used in the New Testament for the name Satan. It is the word accuser or diabolos. There is nothing godly 
And let me tell you, nothing helpful for you to speak ill of people, of children, of other mothers, of other people, especially your husbands. Let's, let's honor this. Let's take this and walk in a, a reverence in how we indulge, a reverence in how we speak so that. Look at the, 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 the going of the, the, the flow of the text. Not slanderers, not slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women. So now we're going to look at young women now. We've sort of moved from older women to currently young women, to be old women. Uh, But don't think that it's no longer addressing old women because in the context, really, he's still saying what the older women should be training the young women to do. So here is what Paul through Titus and the elders want the old women to teach the young women to do. And young women are, though, anyone who is of the age who can be married and have kids or still be raising children. They should be discipled, trained in this community, so much more than just their biological mothers and grandmothers. In the church, we receive mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters in Christ. And so if you're here and there are other younger women than you, you are called to be to them older sisters, older mothers for their good. They need you. Remember, young women, if I can speak to you for a moment, we're told in the Proverbs, whatever else you do, get wisdom. Whatever else you get, get insight. And we know that the deposits of wisdom and insight are so often hidden in those beautiful banks called older women. Those who have gone before and been mothers for decades. Those who have gone through the hurts of failing marriages or hurtful marriages or slanderous friends and and church difficulties, all of that, those women have deposits of wisdom and insight for you. Get around them. Go and make a withdrawal of their great endless wisdom that they've received from the Lord God. Now, here's what they are to be trained to do. You might laugh at this. Train the young women to love their husbands. If you've got to go to boot camp or something, it's probably not natural. So train those young gals to love their husbands. Put them into order in order to do this. Now, if you're working hard at it, there's, there's probably a few reasons. I want to I uh, bring to, you know, do we think training to love? That's an oxymoron. You can't train somebody to love. Love is this, this thing you can't control. It's this urge. It's this passion that just strikes you and you're driven into it and you long for somebody and they're your soulmate. And that, friends, is a demonic Roman or 21st century mythology of love that comes a lot more from the Roman uh, gods than it does from the Bible. The Bible says that love is an intentional decision of living in service and sacrifice for people. Where there's that, there is love. That's why it can be trained. If you think of love as this Cupid-given, you know, explosive romantic, seeing everything with a soundtrack in the background, Disney style, you know, if he, if I'm rock, coming up to our first date and hummingbirds aren't putting my my jacket on for me, and there's not, you know, the sun is not smiling, then is he really the one? If we think of that about love, then we're going to treat our children well when we feel it, and poorly when we don't. And to treat your husbands well when you feel it and poorly when you don't. Friends, the call to love, especially women, the call to love is an intentional decision of sacrificial service. That's the example given to you in Jesus Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve. That is love. And so, uh, and this is to be applied to both husbands and children. The original Greek actually says, train the young women to love their husbands and love their children. It's not just husbands and children. It's, there's the emphasis of love to both. Now, here's the reason why, if I can just speak into our culture, I, I read some awesome commentators this week on this text, quite a difficult one. And whatever else I can say about great guys like Calvin and Spurgeon, you know what one of their downfalls is for me? They're not living in the 21st century. Their commentating on this passage was, and who needs to be instructed to love husbands and children? And they move on. 
No, 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 no. Tell me what that means. Open that up a little bit. That, that's not natural. In their culture, they're just like, who needs to be told to love and submit to their husbands? How glorious. Titus chapter 3. Unhelpful. So here I am on my own. I've found some things. But man, what are some of the things I read this week were I would not, I won't do it. I just won't tell you what I read. But here's, here's why, right? In our culture, they, they come, when, we, when it says train them to love their husbands and children, Right? Spurgeon might say, why is that needed to be done so heartily in your culture? Let, let's discover a few reasons why. Because young women, from the second an iPhone is in their hands, the second they engage with, other, with others in the culture, they are trained daily and drawn from an inward desire, of course, to not love their husbands and children. They're told... Right by the, the feminist ideology, marriage is slavery. Don't marry. You don't need that. Be independent, strong, and veer away from that. If you do love, then I uh, say, so if you do marry, then they tell you about loving wrongly. Because again, it's all this romantic passion that has no basis in scriptural love. They're also told and encouraged to love other people's husbands. There's no borders that keep us strapped down with chastity belts. Friends, sex is good and free and go for it. That man gives you eyes. You chase after him and take his attention. That is what our culture calls it. Adultery is a lost word. Now it's called having an affair, having an extra relationship. The Bible calls it adultery and sin, and it was punished by death in the Old Testament. We're told by the culture, these, these wonderful young women bearing the image of God, they are told constantly to kill their children by abortion. And if you don't yourself, then at least champion the right for other women to do it. And protect these women from the over-oppressive, misogynistic church and men, these white blokes on, on stage telling us what we should do from some misogynistic text. We don't do that here. We don't do that here. We preach the loving, glorious word of God. They're told either kill your children through dismemberment, suction, saline, burning, get rid of them, and if you don't yourself, at least champion the cause for others to do it. They're told that there is, there is a glory in remaining motherless. I listened to a TED Talk just this week. Don't usually do it, but in study, what I need to do to speak into our culture, I listened to this TED Talk of a woman who was, who was speaking to the fact that Considering our resources on earth and the size of the population and all of this, we need to all commit together to have no more than one child. Be fruitful and multiply, she said, was good for survival. Right, you already see where her allegiance are. It's on evolutionary, Darwinianist survival, not the word of God. She says, be fruitful and multiply was good when we needed to survive, but now we need to have less children to survive. And so she was going on all her stats and all her facts and all of this. And we stand as Christians on the word of God. The, the word still comes, be fruitful and multiply. I was sort of thinking through, how, how do we battle this ideology in our culture? You know how you do it? Be fruitful and multiply. Because in one generation, they'll make one kid each family. And we'll have dozens and dozens and dozens of children with our ideology preaching the word of be fruitful and multiply. It's all very mathematical. It's easy. You just outbreed them for the glory of God. Amen. Thank you. <clears throat> but, but, but here it is. Here's this idea that, that I just feel so, so heavily for the young women of our culture that are told that for you to bear a, a child is just this slavish, terrible, degrading idea for you. They're degraded by the idea of marriage and motherhood. And, and so here is the older women to come into this, speak against the voices of our culture and tell those young women the pain real, the sacrifices true, the glory eternal. These children treasured. This family valuable. Your husband is your glory. This is what the older women need to come in and speak so powerfully against the unapologetic culture of our day that is trying to change the mind. Here's what Proverbs 12.4 says. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Culture wants you to be a cancer to your husband. Christ wants you to be a crown. 
Your calling is to serve husband and children in love for their good, and that's why there needs to be training, because our culture hates that. <clears throat> and then we see these sort of internal realities. Look at verse, verse 5 here. To be self-controlled, pure, and skip one, kind. To be self-controlled, pure, and kind. There needs to be, as with young men, as with older men and older women. This self-control is used on every demographic. There needs to be an, a, an inward holiness that produces purity and kindness. That your urges need to be self-controlled by the power of the Holy Spirit. Your sexual desires, your desire for possessions, your anger when things don't go your way, your frustrations over goals or dreams that aren't met. They need to be under control. Let's apply some of the Ten Commandments here for us. It means that as number 10 tells us, you do not covet. You do not covet. You do not covet the calling on your husband or his life that he lives. You do not covet the other people's husbands. You do not covet those men. You do not covet other people's children or their houses or their freedoms or their shoes or their cars or their prams or their bodies or their singleness. Don't covet that, but be content in what God has given to you. Each one of us has been given from the Lord God in his grace and kindness. And, and it says here <coughs> that there would be a kindness. Femininity is kindness. It is gentleness. But don't hear that the, you know, men are called to be like God and women are called to be like women. Now, women are called to be like God. It is God who abounds in loving kindness. Women are called helpers. That's not derogatory. The Holy Spirit is sent as a helper. Yahweh in the Old Testament is called the helper of those who cry to him. The, the woman is, in her fulfilling of a calling, shining forth the image of God just as much as a man is, though in different ways. So let's look at probably the more, like it's all been easy, smooth sailing today. Until now, this is the part that might get a bit uh, uncultural. Maybe uh, maybe uh, people will try, and this is what I was reading this week, how, how much this next portion just gets explained away so much in cultural, historical, cloud smoke screens until it really says nothing. Here's what it says, that women, these young women need to be trained to be working at home and submissive to their own husbands. Working at home and submissive to their own husbands. This is the most visible witness that a woman, a Christian woman, gives to the world. How she works and how she treats and speaks to and relates to her husband. Um, this is a part of design. While some may want to say this is just cultural for Paul's day, we could say yes, that's true. It was cultural. It's like it was cultural a thousand years before that in David's day. It's a, Cultural, a thousand years before that in Abraham's day, and, and 1,500 years before that in Adam's day. Friends, the culture didn't change for six to 7,000 years. It definitely didn't change in the last couple of hundred to the degree that we can now get rid of this text. It's speaking to eternal design, and so it's speaking to eternal relevancy. If you hear this, you know, you submit to husbands, work at home, and you cringe, and you think uh, that that's inequality, then, then I want to work and, and just show you, help you, free you up to love the design of God. I was reading this week, again, it's been a hard week. I read these, these two leading feminists who have been, if this verse for you is disgusting, then I'm going to read to you your philosophical grandmothers. Susan B. Anthony and Emma Goldman uh, were leading feminists uh, coming out of Europe and America. Susan B. Anthony said this, I never felt I could give up my life of freedom to become a man's housekeeper. Pause there. Good. Women should never do that. You're not married to be a maid. You're the glory of your husband and a mother and a woman. But here's what she says. This is her view of marriage. I was never going to give up my freedom to be a man's housekeeper. When I was young, if a girl married poor, she became a housekeeper and a drudge. And if she married wealthy, she became a pet and a doll. Bad. Not helpful, though. She's seeing some likely good problems that we might look at as one and say, yeah, that's bad. Husbands undervaluing their wives? 
Yeah, that's sinful, but her solutions are not to restore a biblical equality. If you think, if you talk about gender equality, then you're a feminist. You belong outside of the church, right? You're part of the problem. That's not helpful rhetoric. But, friends, if you hear feminism and think that's all about restoring biblical equality, you're also part of the problem. That's not true. You've been lied to. They despise God's design for womanhood and marriage. Here's what one of the leading feminists said. Emma Goldman, marriage and love have nothing in common. Okay, off to a good start. Marriage is primarily an economic arrangement, an insurance pact. It differs from ordinary life insurance because you have to agree to something more binding and exacting. And if you pay for this insurance by getting a husband... The woman pays for it with her name, her privacy, her self-respect, her very life until death parts them. Moreover, the marriage insurance condemns her to lifelong dependency, parasitism, to complete uselessness, individual as well as social. Men, though, their marriage does not limit him as much as a woman. The marriage, sorry, that marriage is a failure no one but the very stupid will deny. I'm just happy to be in that category. Emma Goldman calls me very stupid. I'll wear that with honor. The less a woman has, the greater her assets as a wife. The more readily she will absorb herself in her husband. It is this slavish acquiescence to man's superiority that, she, that has kept the marriage institution going on so long. Can there be anything more outrageous than the idea that a healthy, grown woman, full of life and passion, must deny nature's demand must subdue her most intense craving, undermine her health and break her spirit. She must stunt her vision and abstain from the depth and glory of sex until a good man comes along and takes her unto himself as a wife. That is precisely what marriage is. End quote. Hates glorious womanhood. Hates biblical marriage. She sees some right problems. Yes, sexism, oppression, failure to value women. But her, her, her solution is not, let's go back to the Bible. Let's restore God's authority as our creator, rather, comes away from that. So, friends, I want to say that, and this is the most practical. Let's really apply what it means here. The calling of a woman from Eden to heaven is marriage and motherhood. Just two of the most glorious institutions. Marriage, which shows forth the glorious relationship between Christ and the church. And motherhood, which shows forth the glorious relationship between God and his children. Marriage and motherhood. The exceptions, of course, come in God's providence. And this can be painful or this can be circumstantial where there is singleness despite an an attempt to become married. There's just ongoing singleness. We bend the knee to the Lord and pray that the pattern would be fulfilled. Or there would be a closed womb, an inability to have children. And this will be worked through with grace and prayer and is not in either singleness or, or infertility. There is not a sign here of God's judgment or curse. Hear me on that. But despite the the lack of the usual pattern, there is still this call on every woman, if single, if unable to have children, there is still the call to train, to mentor, to love, to teach, to, to disciple and serve through hospitality. Open up the home for other couples, younger people, whatever may be done to continue on this pattern of producing disciples and young women that love their husbands, children, and the calling of God. Here's what it says here in, in, in verse 5. Submitting to husbands. This is the picture that we see fleshed out much more in Ephesians 5, where they are called to submit to their husbands in everything other than sin, just as the church submits to Christ as our leader. Wives are to be the helping companion and submissive equal to the husbands who are the loving heads and the servant lords of their home. Women advise, they weigh in, they assist, they encourage, they help make decisions. Men, you must be living, listening to your, to your wives. They're given for this purpose. But they are to be the submissive party in the marriage covenant. And then secondly, it says working at home. Right? Here's, here's, here's where most questions will come up. And I'm going to leave this 
you probably don't think I'm open-minded at all. A little bit open-ended so that lots of questions can come, and I'm sure we'll get some tonight at tonight's Q&A. But, but the pattern, right, here's the mindset of a woman, is to be working at home over their children as their, and, and husband, with their husband over their children as their highest calling. Now, does this mean a woman can never be employed or work or serve outside of the home? The answer is no, absolutely not. You can open up Proverbs 31 and read through that. There's glorious wife and mother, and she's considering land, she's buying, she's, she's doing taxes, she's running finance, she's sewing, she's in the marketplace, she's in politics with her husband. It's all glorious. However, wherever that, wherever that employment or work starts degrading her ability to raise and rear the children, keep the home orderly and support the husband, it must come secondary to the higher calling. So, of course, women will work, but not to such a degree that everything becomes somebody else's job. Let me give you an example. Um, maids and cleaners, not a sinful thing to have around. If they do all of the work such that because you are unable to be in the home and do work, that's going to be a problem. Daycare, not a problem. But if daycare is a substitute mother where you have little access and oversight of your children and hands-on care between 8 and 7 when they, that's such a lie, 5 a.m. when they rise and 7 p.m. when they go to sleep once they're in order. If in those hours you have little hands-on training rearing time, daycare has stopped being a supplement as uh, sought to replace you and you are not replaceable. If, if working means that, that school uh, takes care of the kids, uh, sorry, teaches the kids, that's a good thing. If they're going to teach them better trigonometry than you can. It's okay, we need kids who know their math. That's fine. But if schooling becomes something to take away from your mothering, and again, you have no hands-on care, that is problematic. The great calling on woman is to be married, honor her husband, serve her children in motherhood, and all other things are supplemental only. Here's, let me just, let me just speak to the men and the husbands here. If your wife is unable to fulfill her calling, which we now know will bring about the greater joy and glory for her, if she's unable to do that for financial reasons, can't be hands-on with the kids, can't be spending time with them, I need to work to supplement my husband's income, then it is on you in order to work more, maybe work at all if you don't, work more, earn more, maybe you need to change jobs, increase hours, whatever you need to do, you do that so that your women, your wives, your queens can do her glorious calling. That's the men's responsibility. Or it means that you decrease lifestyle. You don't need the third boat and your wife's second job. Those can go, this is more glorious. <clears throat> and young men, can I speak to you? I've neglected you today, haven't I, young men? You be a godly man. Get a job. I'm going to say that again. Get a job. Surround yourselves with godly men. Find a godly gal. I'm going to say this next one twice as well. Talk to her dad. Talk to her dad. Get to know him. Ask her out. Make her a wife. Give her children to the glory of God. And let's be fruitful and multi multiply to the glory of the Lord, raising up the next generation in his likeness. Amen? Oh, not many people like today. So that was a weak amen. I, I, I usually get better ones. That's all right. Look. Maybe, I don't know where you are. Maybe, maybe you're a woman on earth or, or a, a man, whoever and wherever you are. You're here and you don't know your call. All this talk of calling, fulfillment, purpose. You don't know why you're on earth. Or you don't know what to do with your sin. The reason we, we come to the word of God is because it speaks to us as our creator to us. Yes, speaking of our design and purpose. Friends, our ultimate purpose is to give glory to God by enjoying him in covenant. As we spoke about earlier. What you can do with your sins, whether sins specific to women or sins of your manhood, whatever it is, your sins have been allowed by God so that you can glorify him by bringing them to Jesus. You are guilty for your sins. You are condemned by a righteous judge in heaven. 
but you are offered, no, you are commanded to come and find full forgiveness, freedom and salvation in Jesus Christ. He came to this earth and lived that perfect life of a man, honoring womanhood, honoring manhood to the glory of God. And he gave his perfect life up on the cross as a sacrifice that would pay your debt, that would clean your soul, that would have your sins forgiven by God. And today I speak to you as one who knows God personally, who knows in his word the truth of his, of his speech, that Jesus is a resurrected God. He died, but he rose. He's now sitting in heaven enthroned. And his call on you, before you try and conform your life to biblical standards, start at Jesus. Give your life, your soul, your sin to him, and he will make you a new creature, forgiven for good works. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace that so many of us as men and husbands fail to honor women, fail to lead in ways that we should, and so they go unprotected. They, they seek other designs and ways to fulfill themselves. Father, we, we ask for your forgiveness over our culture's sins of, of sexism and feminism and everything else that falls behind your good and glorious standard. And I ask, Lord, that you would start with the church, but that you would start with this church, a restoring and a reforming of that good and glorious unit, the family, where the gospel is shown, where it is taught, where holiness is discipled into our children. And God, may the young women here today, teenagers, younger than that even, would they learn to submit to their parents, walk in obedience, and look forward to the day of marriage and motherhood. May you, Lord, protect us from our own folly and sin. May you save us from condemnation. Those here who have not placed their faith in Christ, please bring them this moment, this day, to believe in his glorious, satisfying work on the cross for them. We love you, Lord, and we ask that you would accept our praise as we come before you in this final song. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.